Give us Jesus. We look forward to your message through your word today. And we pray that in your son's mighty holy name, Jesus Christ. And we said at home and here, amen. Thanks, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. Lord bless you all. Um, I'd like to invite you to our prayer meeting tonight at 6 p.m. It's a Zoom prayer meeting. You can go to our website and just follow the links. Um, speaking to a former youth group member who is now a pastor in Indiana, and that they had a person in their church, a woman who was uh, dealing with stage four breast cancer. And her last checkup, they went and they found that there's nothing there. No trace that it ever was there. It's just gone. And we praise the Lord for those kind of things. It's always encouraging to hear when the Lord does do miracles because indeed they're miracles but it encourages us to continue to seek his face. And uh, for those who don't receive such a healing, God gives and provides grace. He provides endurance and perseverance, knowing that it is of a good reward for you, even though you don't receive your desired healing at this point in time. But uh, we rejoice in that and we ask that uh, if you're part of this body, that you would consider joining us tonight at 6 p.m. for our prayer meeting. You have not because you ask not. That's right. And we, Jesus said he taught these parables that men should always pray, continue to pray, and not give up and not faint. So let's join together tonight at 6, shall we? All right. We're in Exodus 28 this morning. We're going to be talking about lights and perfection otherwise known as the urim and the thummim the urim and the thummim i like lights and perfection um, those other words don't roll off the tongue quite so well you know we're in exodus 28 and let's look at verses 29 and 30 and then we'll pray and then we will get into it so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes to the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord so Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Father, we come before you giving you thanks that you are the God of the word, that you have not left us ignorant, but you've revealed yourself through your holy Bible, and that in it we find words of life and encouragement. And I want to give you thanks and praise that you don't leave us alone to wander about aimlessly on this world, but it is your desire to be involved in your creatures' lives for the good, for our good. And we thank you that you give us understanding through your word on how you do this and how, what it's all about. So thank you for being patient with your creation, Lord. Sometimes the learning curve is long. And sometimes, Father, uh, when we do finally get it, it becomes an aha moment, and it's something that's just really exciting and really cool. So please bless this time that we have in your word. Fulfill it, Lord, and fulfill your good purpose. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. If you go on the internet and you Google the will of God, or if you go to YouTube and you Google the will of God, put it in the search engine, you'll find more messages than you know what to do with on finding the will of God. It's a popular topic. It's like going into Barnes and Noble and seeing their sections on self-health books. There's just tons of them. A lot of people think that finding the will of God, well, 
in our lives, we simply um, just live our lives, right? We go to it, and we don't think much of it until something happens, until there's an issue somewhere, and we want to know what the will of God is. And we treat it like a cosmic Easter egg hunt. You know, um, you're searching for the will of God. Oh, there's one over there. No, that's not it. Oh, she got it. Ah, oh, darn it. That was supposed to be mine. Um, we want to know God's will by the use of um, supernatural experiences. You know, um, some decisions you don't, like I said, you don't give much thought to. Want to buy a new car, you just go down the lot, find what you like, and you pick it up and you take it home. Church asks you to come down and help with witnessing, then all of a sudden it becomes a matter of deep spiritual concern where you're going to have to pray about it. And if God lets a dachshund, a talking dog, come to your door at 3 in the morning wearing a, a birthday party hat and a kazoo, <clears throat> then you'll know it's God's will. I think God has a better way. In Exodus 28, verses 29 and 30, we have the introduction of two items of the high priest's clothing. Remember last week we talked about clothing the high priest. And on his ephod, which is like a vestment, there was attached a breastplate. A breastplate was about 6 by 10 inches had all the stones of the children of Israel's names on them. And on the other side of it were sort of what you might call a secret pocket, but it was a pocket. And in that pocket would be two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And this is what he would use to help discern what God's will was. Look at verse 30. It says, you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, the breastplate of judgment. That word judgment, um, it doesn't refer to judgment because of sin or unworthiness. It's a word that refers to decision, to discernment, to determining what God's will is. So judgment, this breastplate of judgment, refers to the decision-making process. And Aaron had on his heart or over his heart the breastplate in which were the Urim and the Thummim, and he bore them upon his heart before the Lord continually. In other words, he had these things always in mind to be doing and declaring the will of God. Now turn over to Leviticus chapter 8, and you'll see sort of a parallel passage, okay, to Exodus 28. It's Leviticus 8, verses 6 through 8. It says, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water and put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. What's going on here, this is the ordination ceremony for Aaron and his sons into the priesthood. Up until this point in time in Exodus, they haven't have a priesthood. This is brand new. So this is the inauguration. And he says in verse 7, he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it he tied the ephod on him. And then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate. Now, I said just as, as a matter of course that the urim and the thummim were thurm, thuth. <laughs> I'm going to really struggle with this one. The lights in perfection were two stones. One of them was black and the other one was white. That's rabbinical tradition, okay? Josephus says in his writings that the Urim and the Thummim were different jewels on the breastplate that would light out to spell out the answers to the questions, okay? And I don't know exactly how that would work because um, you only have 12 names of the tribes of Israel and you got 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet but anyway that's a, that's a tradition also but I think that's the minority view amongst Bible scholars more than likely it was two stones one of them black and the other one white and they were used like with yes and no questions to determine the will of God uh, sort of like a magic eight ball you know 
where you shake the thing and then all of a sudden the answer comes up. Going, I did a little bit of research on magic eight balls, by the way, as I was preparing for this, because I used to have one when I was a kid, and maybe you did too. And um, what you usually do is you ask it a question, you know, will Linda be my girlfriend? Shake, 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 shake. Better not tell you now, you know, or okay. And then you shake, ask the same question, and you do it 20 or 30 times until you get the right answer, right? I read a story of a kid who took a magic eight ball to class with him whenever it came time to take a test. Okay, and it took him a long time to take the test, okay, the process of elimination. But anyway, um, the Magic 8 Ball has 50% positive answers, 25% negative answers, and 25% ambiguous answers, just so you know, okay? And, and interestingly enough, it was actually developed by a seancer, okay, who um, would had a, a little box uh, like a like a little well, it's not a suitcase, but like a little briefcase, and on it was a chalkboard with a piece of chalk, and the person would ask the question, and then they would close the briefcase, and then open up again, and then there would be an answer on it, you know, but it was placed at a certain place on the table, so somebody underneath could get to it. And anyway, that's that's an interesting story on its own. Jo um, I'm thinking that the Urim and the Thummim were more likely stones, white and black stones, that would help determine the will and discern the will of God. The word Urim means light or lights, and the word Thummim means perfection. Urim is lights and Thummim is perfection. The Septuagint, you know, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament renders them not lights and perfection, but truth and manifestation. Truth and manifestation. So any way you look at it, the Urim and the Thummim are related to the manifestation of the truth. Now, who is our manifestation of the truth? Who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus Christ. And Jesus also declared that he was the light of the world. So Jesus is our lights and perfection and our truth and manifestation. And we're going to get into that next week. Uh, we're going to look at the Old Testament way of discerning God's will. And next week we'll get into uh, the New Testament way. The Urim and the Thummim were kept in a pocket on the breastplate. That little pocket, like I told you, which was on the, uh, the breastplate of judgment. And that's when the, the high priest would reach in there and pull one of them out or both of them out. I don't know exactly how it worked and determine the will of God. So let's look at um, how it was used in different examples in the, in the Old Testament. Um, let's look at Numbers chapter 27, okay? Turn to Numbers chapter 27. This is the ordination of Joshua. This is Moses passing the torch. Uh, he's telling Moses, the Lord is telling Moses how Joshua will be making decisions concerning matters of state. Okay, and that's typically what this was used for. Um, you don't ever really see it being used for what you might consider trivial matters, you know? Uh, do I go to Burger King or Taco Bell? Let's find out what God's will is. Uh, not like that, but on serious matters of state where it uh, really meant some severe repercussions if you didn't follow God's will. And here we see the ordination of Joshua. And look at verse 21 in Numbers 27. He says, he, that's speaking of Joshua, and this is God speaking to Moses, okay? Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest. Now, you guys probably thought Aaron was the high priest at this time, but by the time you get to Numbers 27, Aaron has passed off the scene, and his son Eleazar has taken over. So Joshua shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. That's a colloquialism. 
So in other words, that's just all about, this is how they're gonna conduct their business. They're when, when, to, when to go left, when to go right. This is, that's what that means. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. The Amplified Version of the Bible renders that verse, Joshua will stand in front of the priest, Eleazar. Eleazar will help him make decisions. Eleazar will help him, excuse me, will get help from me using the Urim. Joshua and the whole community of Israel must not make any move at all unless I command them so. So here's a new leader of the people, and he's being told not to lean on his own understanding, okay? Doing what's right in his own eyes, but to seek the will of God by consulting Eleazar, who would use the Urim and the Thummim to discern God's will in all matters of state coming in and going out, as it were. And uh, I, I am glad that God has provided for us, just as he did for Joshua, through Jesus Christ, ways to discern his will in all matters, concerning my state of affairs. I'm not left to my own devices when it comes to making decisions that are going to impact my family or impacting the church. Um, I had a, a, a teacher friend ask me one time when she read the bulletin of our church and what we believe and why we believe, and she's not a believer herself. She says, can't you guys just think for yourselves? I said, well, yeah, that's what got me in trouble. <laughs> that's why I'm in the mess I'm in. I need something that's going to guide me in truth. And uh, if you think I'm weak, praise God for my weakness. Because I can tell you being on the other side of that, I am much happier, content, and um, very, very convicted that I'm on the right path. I think there's great comfort in knowing that God has an interest in directing me in my affairs. It's a privilege to have counsel from God himself and to know that he takes interest in my family, in me, in the church affairs. He tells me to cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. So thank you, Lord, right? Lights and perfection are going to be the way God communicates to Israel concerning matters of state. All right, now let's turn to 1 Samuel 14, and we'll see another use of the Urim and Thummim. Saul's going to use them to sniff out a traitor among, in his ranks. Let me give you a little background here. Jonathan, King Saul's son, and his armor bearer, have just taken a great venture of faith by revealing themselves to a garrison of the Philistine soldiers who were stationed on a high hill on a cliff. So that meant that the Philistine soldiers would have a tactical advantage, right? <clears throat> they determined to put themselves at risk if it was God's will to conquer this little garrison of 20 or so soldiers. If it was God's will that they would have victory, then the Philistines would invite them up to where they were and to fight. That doesn't make sense. Why would he tell me, you know, that's God's will, let's go up where we have the tactical disadvantage and we're outnumbered, okay, two to one. Uh, actually, five to one, no, 10 to one. Math's not my strong suit, guys. <laughs> and that's what happened. The Philistines saw them and said, hey, come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. <laughs> and so they said, okay, victory time. And they ran up and they took on those 20 soldiers and they put them on the run. And God caused an earthquake to happen and the Philistine army panics and they all begin to run. Uh, if you're my age, you remember a song by Johnny Horton called The Battle of New Orleans, right? We fired our guns and the British kept it coming. Wasn't nigh as many as it was a while ago. Fired once more and they all began a running down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. That was the Philistine army. Now King Saul, who wasn't there, gets wind of this and he does something um, rather foolish. He puts his own army under a curse. Think about that, okay? They got the enemy on the run. So what do you do as a leader? You curse your people. Look at verse 24. 
The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. So they go chasing after the Philistines, but they're going to go on an empty tank. They're not going to be able to eat. They're going to come across a lot of the Philistines' um, leftovers, if you will. They just abandon their stuff and just beat feet. And they're not going to be able to partake of it. They're not going to be able to eat of it. Um, they, uh, there's, and which is part of the problem in this passage. Jonathan stops. He sees some honey, right? And he takes his hand, he puts it in his mouth, and he eats of it, and he feels better, and he's ready to go. Then they tell Jonathan the oath that his father made everybody take, that they wouldn't eat anything. So he, 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 <laughs> he cursed himself, if you will. Let's start off by saying that this is a very selfish and plainly wrong thing to do for Saul. And uh, you have probably seen decisions made by leaders and wonder where their head was at when they make that decision, right? You know, I tried to find a colloquial expression for that type of a person, but I couldn't find anything that was suitable for a church audience. <laughs> and that is just, this, this what Saul is doing is just wrong on so many levels. First of all, he curses people, and it's like, who are you to curse, dude? If anyone has the duty to curse, it would be Samuel the prophet because he was the one who would be speaking in the name of the Lord, not the king. You're the political and military leader of God's people, and you're a leader under authority. And vengeance, you know, until I have my vengeance. Well, who are you to be taking vengeance? God says what? Vengeance is mine. It's like, it's my personal property. Don't touch it. You remember you older siblings, when you had younger siblings, you locked your room and put a sign on the door that said a nuclear reactor was in there and nobody was to come in and if they did come in and touch anything, you know, that was, that was where the death penalty was executed in your own home. And then he says, <coughs> until I have vengeance over my enemies. Dude, this is God's nation. This is God's enemy first and foremost. Yeah, you're, you, they are your enemy also, but first they are God's. And David understood this when he was a kid. Ready? When he went, when he went to, um, against Goliath, right? And he said, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. He had the right attitude, but... Saul did not. And, and think of the timing of this curse. Really, Saul? The armies just had this great victory, and now you want to get all spiritual and fast? Timing is awful. You should have fasted before you got out there. And right now, you need to be celebrating. This is a victory. This is good. Don't put the burdens on the people. Now drop down to verse 30 and see Jonathan's lament. And I'm going to read to you from... <clears throat> the Amplified Version. 1 Samuel 14.30 <clears throat> How much better it would have been if only the people had eaten freely today from the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, the job isn't finished. They ran out of steam because of Saul's rash command. And then verse 36 Saul um, is uh, he's lusting for a little bit more. He says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them alive. And they said, that's his, his army or his leaders, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us approach God here. Finally, someone with common sense and the guts to speak up. Verse 37, it says, Saul asked counsel of God. <laughs> Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? 
But notice what it says. God did not answer him that day. Heaven was locked in silence. Why? He's asking the wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. There are times when heaven can be locked in silence because there's something God is more concerned about than what you're asking about. Before he deals with your concern, he's going to deal with his concern. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. And God said himself through the prophet Isaiah, my ears not deaf, nor my arms short, that I cannot rescue you. It's your sin that separates you from me. Now today you say, well, that's under the law, but we're under grace, right? Yeah, right. But grace is not to be used and abused. Galatian tells you firmly, New Testament grace, that God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. But there is one prayer that God will always hear, and that's the prayer of repentance. Um, but that's not what Saul was looking for here. Verse 38, Saul says, Come here, all you who are leaders of the people, and let us find out how this sin causing God's silence happened today. All right, there's an issue. There's sin in the camp here. So we're going to find out who the problem is with. And he separates his family, him and Jonathan, from everybody else. Okay, he's got the right question. This is the question that God is going to answer. Only Saul's not going to like the answer he gets. Look at verse 39. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, for even if the guilt is in my son Jonathan, he shall most certainly die. Oh, doesn't that sound like Saul's a pious, righteous man? But not one of the people answered him. To me, that's significant. They know they answer, don't they? <laughs> but they're keeping their mouths shut. Ever found yourself in that situation with a leader, a boss, a husband or wife, and they'll make some statement like that, and you just sort of keep your mouth shut, look at the dirt, kick your stone with your toe, look to the left, look to the right. Proverbs says it's better not to answer a man in his folly, in his foolishness. The best thing you can do in some situations sometimes is just to look at the ground. Now, there are times when you need to confront, but you need to be led of the Spirit to do that. Verse 41, Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. That means manifest the truth here. Give a true lot. Okay. Perfect lot in the Hebrew is very close to the word for thummim. They no doubt used the urim and the thummim in the way, as the way to cast the lot. That's David Guzik. Now let me read to you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 41 and 42. Then Saul prayed to God, O God of Israel, why haven't you answered me today? Show me the truth. If the sin is in me or Jonathan, then God, give the sign Urim. But if the sin is the army of Israel, give the sign Thummim. The Urim sign turned up and pointed to Saul and Jonathan, and that cleared the army. Next, Paul said, cast the lots between me and Jonathan, and death to the one God points to. And death to the one God points to? Saul, you have no clue. At this point, Jonathan's friends in the army speak up. They're just not going to let this foolishness continue. The soldiers protested, verse 42, no, this is not right, stop it. But Saul pushed on anyway. They cast the lots, the Urim and the Thummim, and the lot fell to Jonathan. Well, what do you know? The traitors from Saul's own family, and I, he didn't see that coming. And when we make rash oaths, we step out without God's counsel, when we operate under our own counsel, in our own arrogance, we're courting disaster, guys. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
or another way to say it, too much pride will destroy you. If a person is too arrogant, he or she will make a mistake and fail in a big way. You know, we have a, a whole YouTube channel or many YouTube channels dedicated to fails, right? Um, sports fails, skating fails, TV news anchor fails, dog fails, cat fails, driver fails, and the list goes on and on and on. And they're epic and they're hysterical and they're very humiliating too which is why we watch them, right? Only they're not humiliating us, we're watching other people being humiliated. I wonder if God has a compilation of our spiritual fails, right? Um, that wouldn't be funny, would it? It would be pretty embarrassing. No, he doesn't, guys, just so you know. He's not keeping a YouTube channel in heaven with all of our fails on it. Romans 12.1 says, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Romans 8 one says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So he'll keep our secrets. However, we are doomed to fail if we don't have a surrendered, humbled spirit before God. When we approach him for his will to be done, before we get involved in a venture, we better be sure that we are in touch with the Most High, and that we are surrendered to the Most High. Romans 12.1 says, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, which means we are to have settled the issue of whose will will be done before you start, before you can prove what God's will is. And the time to have done that was before Saul directed his armies into battle, but unfortunately, he was full of himself. James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Okay, we've seen the lights and perfection used to determine matters of state. Now let's look at it as it gives David a heads up. Let's move to 1 Samuel 23, all right? 1 Samuel 23. At this time in the history of Israel, David is on the verge of doing some very, very seriously bad things. He is tired of being chased by Saul. He is second guessing his own call. And he is, uh, him and his, his mighty men are sort of being used as mercenary soldiers and King Achish of the Philistines thinks David is attacking Israeli settlements, but he's not. He's attacking Amalekite and Philistine settlements. And uh, to make sure he doesn't get found out, he makes sure no one is left alive, not man, woman, or child. Now, understand none of that was ordained by God. None of that was approved by God. That's just something David did on his own. But still, we know that David is what? A man after God's own heart. How many of us have not done foolish, stupid things? Even though we know we love the Lord, but we get discouraged. And discouragement is one of Satan's best weapons against the saint. And discouragement may lead you into actions and things that you will be ashamed of later and even be held accountable for later. But anyway, having said all that, verse 1 of chapter 23 tells us that they told David, saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against <clears throat> Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines. Interesting. Okay. His backslidden state notwithstanding, how do you think David inquired of the Lord? Look at down at verse 6. It happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hands. What's on the ephod? Breastplate of judgment. And 
what's inside the pockets behind the ephod, the breast of judgment, right? The Urim and the Thummim, correct. The lights and perfection. Verse 3, David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah, where against the armies of the Philistines. Then David inquired of the Lord again, once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. Here's something you need to know. <clears throat> You're seeking God with your whole heart and you want his answer. There's no shame in getting confirmation, especially if those closest to you are in doubt of the decision you're about to make. Don't be hardening your pride and say, no, I heard from God and I don't need to go again. It's no problem. You go again and ask for confirmation. Um, we often ask again in hopes of getting a different answer, you know, because you usually got something you really don't want to do and you know the Lord's calling you to do it. So again, get that magic eight ball out. Keep shaking it until you get the answer you want. But Dave here is asking for confirmation. Verse 5, he says, David and his men went to Keilah. They fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. All right? Then drop down to verse 7. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. <clears throat> Notice that David isn't leaning on his own instincts, his own military expertise. He's leaning on the Lord. He's, he goes to God. In verse 10, David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Well, before you even read the answer to that question, does it make you wonder why would they do that after David has just done this marvelous thing for them, delivering their city? from the hand of their enemies? Are they gonna turn and betray David? Well, remember the Judge Judy principle. No good deed goes unpunished, all right? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. That indicates to me that he has a passion here and a desire he wants to know the truth. He wants God to manifest the truth. You've heard that saying, don't ask if you don't want to know. All right. He wants to know. And the Lord said, he will come down. And he says, well, the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul. And the Lord says, they will deliver you. Okay. At this point, David's men must have been looking at him saying, what is up with this? All right. You said God is leading us up to Keilah to deliver it, and now you're going to be delivered into Saul's hand? So David and his men, about 600, rose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. I suppose they could have just turned right around and started slaughtering the people of Keilah in a fit of anger and rage, right? But instead, they all took off and they went wherever they could go, which sort of gives the indication that they all split in different directions. <clears throat> it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. For whatever reason, David is in trouble, and it's not fair. He's been betrayed. But instead of acting out in anger and vengeance, he's seeking the Lord who gives him a heads up. And David takes the opportunity to get out of there. Uh, when I read of this particular incident, I can't help but be reminded that we don't always get the answer we like from God. Even when we are at a place that we know God 
has led us. Human nature being what it is, it remains the same always. I'm quite sure that as David was asking that question, he was hoping against hope. That would get say, God was going to say, no, don't worry, Dave, we got you back. Right? They're not going to do it. I'll influence them and they will protect you. But that's not what they did. Try to put yourself in David's place. How do you feel? <laughs> would your faith begin to waver at this point? Would you get all upset and be disappointed? Would you decide that maybe God doesn't hear you and you just better, you know, wonder whether this faith stuff works at all? There's a tremendous lesson. I think there's a tremendous lesson in this. God tells us the truth. He doesn't tell us what we want to hear. And sometimes the truth is not what we want to hear. I spent three years in a ministry that I was certain that God had called me to. I expected to have the Midas touch there. You know, the Midas touch, everything you touch turns to gold, right? Matter of fact, sitting in a restaurant with the pastor and his wife, we were praying and his prayer over us was that our work and our ministry would be gold. So I was excited. I thought, you know, here it is. The Templeton Evangelistic Ministry team is going to just burst out. Well, that's not what happened. What I got was a whole different thing. Um, it became one of those million-dollar experiences that you would not even give a dime to go through again. It taught me a lot about mystery. Mystery. It was a mystery. It taught, it taught me a lot about ministry and trusting God. But the whole thing failed, even though I knew God had called me to be there. I knew it. I knew it. With every call of God, now are you listening? Wake up. With every call of God, there are always blessings and there are always challenges. With every call of God, there are always blessings and there are always challenges. And there's always the possibility that things are not going to work out the way you thought they would or even the way you would, were promised they would. But they always work out the way God intends them to always you see the things i learned from that experience has helped me me a better minister of the gospel even though like i said i wouldn't give you a plug nickel go do it again you are in a safe place when you are humbly seeking god for your next move your challenges will not be wasted like peter said trials will be turned to what gold that's right all right, let's fast forward now. First Samuel chapter 30. How are we doing for time? All right, we're good. First Samuel chapter 30. In this situation, <clears throat> word gets to David that the city um, Achish gave him and his men to dwell in was a city called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. And it had been attacked, um, and all of his, excuse me, their wives, their children, everything was confiscated and taken away. None of them were killed, but they were hauled off. Your men, their wives, their children are gone. David's wives, and I would assume whatever children he had then, were gone also. And the city was burned to the ground. Now, what do you do? Well, what's your first instinct? Get on your horses and ride. Right? But that's not what David does. Look at verse 7. 1 Samuel 30, verse 7. David said to Abiathar, the priest... Ahimelech's uh, son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now, what's in the ephod, guys? The Urim and the Thummim. Okay. And again, I, the, the question I would have, what do you mean? You've got to stop, get on your horse and ride, dude. But that's not what he's doing. You have to think about going to rescue your family, David, really? I was reminded of uh, Sherry's father 
and her mother driving out from Virginia to Arizona. And he stopped at a gas station somewhere in either Oklahoma or Texas or someplace where it was the only thing out there and it's just barren. And they got their signals crossed. Um, she had been sleeping in the back and he had a curtain in the back so that he couldn't see her from the front seat. And he's out on one side filling the gas tank up and she got out of the car and she went into the restroom. And he, not knowing, paid for the gas, jumped into the car and took off and left her there. It wasn't three hours later that he realized <laughs> what he had done or what had gone on. Now you're thinking, like, well, he pulled over to the side of the road and maybe he took out the ephod and began to consider, do I go back? Dr. Temple, Joe Temple, in his commentary on this section says this, listen carefully to what I'm about to say and do not misunderstand me. Logic can be a very dangerous thing for a child of God. The logical thing for David to have done would have been to pursue these people and take them captive. But he doesn't do that. He stops and he seeks the Lord and seeks his direction. Proverbs 21:31 says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to? That's right. Psalm 3:8 says, a victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Again, don't lean on to your own understanding. You've got to seek the Lord. Um, and sometimes the Lord will tell you to do something absolutely illogical. I've seen a lot of people do illogical things and blame it on the Lord, okay? But then there are the times when you really are seeking God's counsel and your heart is humble and it's open and you're surrendered and he tells you to do something and go, that's not going to make sense. Chuck Smith, leaving a thriving church of 300 or more in Corona to take on a church of 25 meeting in a trailer park rec center didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to Kay. She'd read the story. He thought he was outside his mind. It didn't make logical sense, but it blessed the world, didn't it? Okay, verse 8, 1 Samuel 30. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, this is a rare thing. God doesn't always tell you how it's going to turn out when he tells you what to do. But sometimes he does. And here he promises David that he will recover everyone without fail. We have an expression about how some things are a no-brainer, right? They require and involves little thinking through. But what we've learned is that not all things are as they seem. Who would know better than an omnipresent, omnipotent, om omniscient God, ever-present, all-knowing, who has made you his personal concern? Who would know better what to do? It, you save yourself a lot of pain. So here we see another thing for which the Urim and the Thurman were used for, used to determine the will of God in relation to what seemed to be a very logical thing. And so now I know you're tempted to go find some sort of Urim and Thurman to keep it in your pocket and to walk around, right? And uh, you know maybe you're gonna get 10 pennies and every time you ask the Lord for something, if it's his will, if all of them come up heads, then you'll know it's his will, right? Or maybe you can get a, a, a pair of dice and shoot them every time you come up to making a decision. No, we're living in New Testament times, not the Old Testament, and we've got someone who can read the Urim and the Thummim without any mistakes. And we have access to him without need of a priest because he is our great high priest. He is our Urim and Thummim. And next week when we get into, we're going to get into that in the New Testament and see the relationship between the two. Just know this, guys. You're in a good place. 
you're in a special place in this point in time in history. You are in a privileged place because of your faith. And we are told to walk by faith and not by sight. You are in Christ. And in the words of the old hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living because he lives. Amen? All right. Angel, Nat, come on up. Let's pray, guys. Father, it is good to be in your presence. It's good to be meeting together even though we are meeting apart. <clears throat> what good about it is that we know we have the assurance, we have the confidence that you are with us and that your being with us, Lord, assures us that our daily life is covered in grace we have the we have the privilege and the and we acknowledge that privilege of having your guidance and direction and your protection father so i pray for those lord who are are questioning who would love to have a, a urim or a thummim a light or perfection a manifesting of the truth something physical that they could touch I pray, Father, that you help them touch their faith. Help them touch you by faith. And may you comfort their souls and give them peace. We trust you, Lord. We love you. And we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.